Hey guys, Steve Hopkins here, pastor at Kendrick's Creek United Methodist Church. Just wanted to welcome you today to Kendrick's Creek Online. Uh, wherever you're joining us from, special welcome to you. Thanks for joining with us, and, and please do let us know how we can serve you and pray for you today. A uh, couple things we just get into it. I, I don't want to keep you from, uh, from the message, so we'll get right into it in a second. But uh, three things I want to share with you. Number one is we are back to hosting in-person services now. I'm pretty excited about it. It is going to be a different kind of method and format. Um, so it's not just going to be the same like replica of what we're doing online. Online and in-person are not going to be identical. They're going to be a little different because it's different being online and it's different being in-person. And so if you want any more information about that, you have any questions, uh, please feel free to reach out and, and let us know how we can clarify anything. Um, but again, no pressure. People have all sorts of different comfort levels and, and what they want to do. Our in-person services, our in-person worship is going to be um, you know, very safe from that standpoint. But, but please do, um, if you have any questions, reach out and let us know. But, but trust me that in the meantime, whatever weird world we're living in, we're going to continue to put out stuff online and going to continue to worship and pray together however we can uh, in person as well. So second thing I want to say um, is that, you know, if this is just the way that you feel most comfortable joining with us, please do uh, find some way to get connected. So whether that's subscribing to our email list, uh, filling out that connection card, just letting us know how you might like to get connected, whether it's in a, a Zoom Sunday school or small group or um, just having some information to stay in touch with what the church is doing, just follow us on social media, just something, some next step that you can take to get connected with a little bit of community. I'm an introvert, and so I, uh, I tend to like not be very into that, um, so I hear you. Uh, but just it's really important to the life of following Jesus, especially in this season that's so weird and so disconnected and so isolated. Take a next step to get connected. Just an encouragement for you. No pressure, uh, but I think it'd be very helpful for you. Third thing I want to say, again, no pressure, uh, but thank you so much for so many of you who've continued to give and to support uh, what our church is doing in the community. Um, we couldn't do it without you. And so I'm personally really grateful for you and for those gifts. Uh, if you'd like to continue to give, it's really easy to do so online. You go to kendrickscreek.org, find the online giving link. You can also text the word Kendrick's Creek, one word, to 77977. Take you through the process, very easy and simple as well. You can also send checks. Um, to, uh, to our P.O. box or to like the actual church. Um, those are also things you can do. Uh, we do not accept carrier pigeons though. So like if you're still using that mode of transportation, like I'm sorry, we can't receive them. Sorry. Uh, but please do continue to support. We're so grateful for it. And really every gift means a lot. Um, so you'll see we're at a pretty cool place today. I won't spoil the surprise, um, but man, I'm really excited about it. Uh, I'll catch y'all in just a second, but right now I just want to take us into the scripture and we'll get on with the, with the message and teaching for today. So we got a new front door on our house uh, this last week. I, I'm personally pretty excited about it. Um, it's a very good door. It's actually a storm door. Um, I didn't really know this was a thing. Uh, some of you are looking at me like I'm kind of dumb. I might be. That's okay. Uh, I didn't really know like the difference, like really what the purpose of it was. If you don't know, it's cool. I'm, I'm right there with you. It's basically like a glass kind of screen door in front of your actual door. 
And like, what I don't get about it is like, isn't one door enough? Like, why do you need two? Like, what the purpose does the second door? It's all right. It serves a purpose. But anyway, our last one had some problems. Uh, like, if you if you didn't walk in the door fast enough, um, it would definitely close on your heel, which always hurt. Especially if you were wearing like flip flops or something. Maybe a reason to not wear flip flops. It would get you if you weren't quick enough. The other thing that it would do, which which was particularly hard for a door, is like uh, this happened to me a lot, and anyone who has come over to my house in the last couple months knows exactly what I'm talking about is you'd walk up to the door and you'd grab the handle and you'd pull it open it didn't turn it was just a pull you know but it's actual like knob and so you grab the handle and you pull it open and the knob would come with you but the door wouldn't and uh, that's a problem not supposed to do that anyway high time that we got a new door uh, so Mike came over and, and he uh, he went to work on it and I mean he did an awesome job I looked at like what he was doing and it was just so far over my head that, like I couldn't even make sense out of it um, I'm not good with stuff like that and I'm really grateful for people who are um, stuff like building things has always been a challenge for me I know I've said that before but like I don't know why uh, but if I had to blame someone, I blame my parents, really. It's their fault because they didn't give me Legos enough as a kid. That's not really true. I just, I also just didn't really do very well with Legos. It's, here was my problem. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you can't. I don't know. I tell open the Legos, right? And you see on the box what it's supposed to look like, whether it's the Death Star or like the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever it is. And then like, there's this really beautiful thing made out of Legos. And then you open the box and it's like a thousand tiny little bricks of like different shapes and sizes and colors. And like, I don't know how they go together. And sure they have instructions, but those instructions don't seem quite like good enough. You know, like all that Legos are, are the kid version of like a bookshelf. Cause like when you get older and then you have to put together bookshelves or cribs or whatever, it like, it's the same thing. A bunch of different pieces that are different shapes, sizes, and colors. And I have no idea how they fit together. I'm assuming they do, but I try to read the instructions and like someone typed the instructions out in Google translator to put them into English and they don't make sense. Like they're missing prepositions and adverbs and I don't, it's a mess. Anyway, it's a good thing that I don't build stuff and that that's not my job. <laughs> Um, but the reason I'm telling you all that, and the reason that we're actually in front of a building today um, that we'll talk more about in a minute, uh, the reason that we're, we're talking about it is just because uh, that's what Paul talks about here in Ephesians. Um, is as we get to the end of chapter 2 of Ephesians, we see like what Paul has been talking about in this letter that we're looking at together just because we feel like we need a reset. I mean, I feel like I need a reset for my life, for my heart, my mind, my will, my soul, my body. Like, I need a reset. I need to, to have my mind renewed uh, with a new vision of the kingdom of God again. So, just need that reset, right? And, uh, and one of the things I think that Paul so simply and eloquently says is that like he explains the gospel and he explains what happens when individuals have their lives transformed by God's grace. We looked at it last week. He said that you were saved by grace through faith. You were saved as you trust in Jesus, that God's power works in you to do what you could not do yourself. That You were delivered from not only the penalty of sin, but also the power of it to control your life as well. You're no longer a slave to sin. You no longer have to do what it says. You can live a new life as a child of God. You can live a new life of freedom in Christ. That's what he says is possible and available to you. That that even more than that, that your life is God's masterpiece, that your new life in Christ is God's poem that's spoken out to the world, it's his witness to a broken and hurting world, it's your life. That's where we get to this part in Ephesians 2, because if that's true for individuals, the like 
natural logical flow is like if, if God can do that kind of thing in an individual life, what happens when those groups of individuals come together? In other words, what does it look like when you have a bunch of Lego pieces spread out on the floor of all different shapes, sizes, and colors, and you don't know how they fit together? Like, can God do something with that? Funny story, but he can. And so we'll look at Ephesians 2 here together. I invite you to follow along if you want. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 is where we'll start today. Um, and then we'll just work through this section together. So Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love the way that Paul explains this, um, and maybe that seems a little confusing to you. We'll talk about it, I think, in a way that hopefully will not be as confusing, but one of the things when you read the Bible that you should pay attention for are words like, uh, like, therefore. So remember that like literally the last section, what we talked about last week, if you didn't watch it, you probably should. You can pause this, go back and watch it right now. Um, but he says like that this is what the gospel looks like when it takes root in individual lives. Therefore, he says. And so that means that everything that's coming after is explaining something that is dependent upon what came before it. So he's saying, therefore, remember that you were once Gentiles uh, and you were foreigners to God's covenant and you were considered like without hope and without God in the world, that the gods that you worship, because they, they worshiped gods, right? It's not that they, they were just totally irreligious, right? Which is kind of what we think of people today is, no, they had lots of gods. They were not what you would call atheists. They believed in gods. They believed in lots of gods. That was part of the problem. Paul says that no, like actually those gods that you believed in, they're not actually gods. They're statues, they're idols, they're, they're dark forces at work in the world. They're not gods. You're without hope and without God in the world, but now, now you've been brought into the family. Now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now something has changed in you. And so he's explaining what this means. Um, I think we need to pause and just talk about a certain distinction that would have been really clear to the Ephesian church, but that doesn't quite make as much sense to us. So again, keep in mind, Paul is writing to a church in this ancient city in modern day Turkey that we call Ephesus, third largest city in the world, had a very um, large pagan temple in the middle of it, the temple to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, there's, of course, a, you know, consequently a very large pagan population in the city. There's also a significant, it was very small, as it was often in these large cities, but very small, uh, but very um, cohesive and strong Jewish community that would have worshipped in synagogues, um, that, that prayed together, and that lived out the witness of the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish God uh, in this very pagan city. And so the, even this understanding of Jew versus Gentile in a city like Ephesus uh, would have been particularly clear. Uh, and so we have to kind of understand what those means. And so, like, what is a Jew? I mean, do you know? Right? Well, we think of it basically in terms of religion, uh, but the kind of modern categories of religion maybe don't work as well, because we tend to think that you can separate religion from the rest of your life, but in the ancient world, that wasn't really a thing. Like, it defined who you were. 
And when you hear about it in Paul's language, you can look back in history and see that this is true. Um, So for someone to be a Jew, not only meant like that's a religion they adhered to, but it was their identity. And, And I think what we see is that like a Jew was someone who not just believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just someone who worshiped in the synagogue community and who celebrated the holy days and the festivals, but it was literally someone who was a member of the covenant community, someone who saw themselves as being marked by the covenant of Abraham, which is the point of circumcision. If you keep in mind, the point of circumcision is is literally is a sign, a physical sign on the human body of God's covenant with Abraham. So that's what it meant to be a Jew in, you know, my best 45 second synopsis. Hope that worked for you. Um, So then the question is like, if that's what a Jew is, then what is a Gentile? Well, very simply, a Gentile is everybody else (laughs) who's not a Jew, who's not a member of that community. Uh, And so, of course, at one level, right, this division is very sharp, very clear, very stark. And it is also somewhat like racially defined, right? Like the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, I mean, this was a race. This was an ethnic group to be a Jew. It still is. And so we see like at one level, this is ethnic, but someone who was born and raised a Gentile could become a Jew. It was just a process, right? I mean, you had to um, certainly like go through different rituals and different practices, one of which included circumcision, right? To be marked then physically on your body by the covenant. So what we see happens in the early church is that this message of the Jewish God doing a new thing, through Jesus, who is the Messiah of Israel, the anointed King of Israel, who we would say basically, I mean, Paul says in the New Testament says that basically Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, the anointed King of Israel stands as Israel's representative from God to the world. Now that might seem a little confusing, but here's where the covenant makes a little bit more sense. Is that when God makes his covenant with Abraham, way back in Genesis, he says, um, he says, Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore and the, the, the whole world will be blessed through them. It's an important part of the idea of blessing is that blessing is never really just about you being hashtag blessed. It's about you being blessed for the sake of the world. And so the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, they were blessed by God with a special relationship, a chosen people so that, therefore, they could be a people who blessed the world, who blessed the Gentiles. So we see in Jesus as Israel's anointed king, as Israel's Messiah, as the Christ, that's all the same word, as Israel's representative, that what he did is he was the the actual embodiment, the physical incarnation or the presence of God, extending that blessing from Israel to the world. And that what Jesus does on the cross is to extend not only just forgiveness, um, to extend grace and redemption and peace to anyone who would receive it. I mean, that's what we talked about last week when Paul's understanding of you are saved by grace through faith and it's a gift. It's this idea that what God is doing in Jesus is a gift, not for just a select group of people, not for people who just look and think and act a certain way, but it is a gift that is available to all people. And when in the Greek it says all, it means all. That's not a trick word. It's actually what it means. Uh, Paul is trying to explain this to this group of people because as the church comes together and as certain uh, members of the Jewish community, as Paul was, he's a Pharisee, as the earliest disciples were, they were Jewish, as Jesus was, he was a Jew too, is that um, these Jewish believers were trying to make sense of what it looked like to to live now in this new life in Christ. Did, Did it really change things? Did it change their practices, their rituals, their traditions? 
Um, and then even at another level, like how then do they integrate with Gentile communities that like they were told just in the teaching not that, that they had to not interact with because they'd get polluted by all different kinds of practices and pagan worship and ritual. Like how do they interact and come together? Is there any way that it's possible? The early church really struggled with this so much so that there were essentially two groups, right? There was the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And in too many cities we read about in the book of Acts, like those two groups, they did not come together. They just didn't see eye to eye. They didn't share practices. They didn't know how to bridge that gap. And what Paul is writing to, he's writing this church in Ephesus. He's saying, no, listen, you are one church. It's not these group of people over here and this group of people over here. No, you're one church. That's how you come together. He explains it like this in, in Ephesians 2. He says um, that Jesus, he, Christ himself, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier by the has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two groups thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to god through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached or proclaimed peace to all who were far away and peace to all who were near. That's an interesting statement, right? And there again, it's helpful for us to think about something. Is that like literally in the Jewish temple in Israel, the temple, uh, there were these walls that were erected. Um, like actual physical walls that were built to separate the, uh, the devout Jewish men from women and children and Gentiles. You know, I mean, even within Judaism today or, or different religions, I mean, it's like this in Islam, is that uh, oftentimes men and women and children, they don't interact together in a worship service. Why? Because, you know, that we don't want to distract people, right? We want to keep things separate, keep it pure, keep it focused. Um, the Christian church, I mean, was not like that. It was a little bit messy. You got kids running all over the place. You got men and women, and they're all sitting together at one table, and Jews and Gentiles, and they're all eating together, like off the same plate. Like, that's weird. It, people didn't know what to do with it. How do you make sense of this? And what Paul is saying is that in Jesus, he is tearing down those dividing walls of hostility. He's literally ripping down the dividing walls of hostility. He's breaking down the barriers that keep us apart. Because if there's one thing that human beings are really good at, it's putting barriers between us and, and other people. It's finding ways to make an us versus them. It's finding ways to say, we are the good people, they're the bad people, or we're in and they're out. Now, I know what you're thinking, this can't possibly apply to anything that's happening in our world today, right? Right? Just look around, turn on the news. How much of it is people saying like, we're right and they're wrong. We're good, they're bad. We wanna keep things pure. They're trying to change everything. You see, like this is, people do not change. Like human condition, it, it has not changed. Human beings at like a very big sense, a meta level, um, we're not like on this inescapable march toward progress. Sure, a lot of things in our world are a lot better today. Don't get me wrong. Like, I like being able to drive my car here to Bluntville and like get Dunkin' Donuts on the way. I'm real grateful for that. What a gift. Uh, if I'm sponsored by Dunkin', that's cool. Like, they can get at me later. Um, but I said I work at him. Uh, so like, I'm grateful for those things, those modern conveniences. But the truth is like, human beings, we really, all the stuff, the problems that we face, it's the same. 
It's always been the same, and in many ways, it's going to continue to be the same. But that's why the vision of the gospel is so different, is that what, what literally what Jesus is doing is he is making a new humanity. That's what Paul said. I love this line. Is that his purpose, his purpose in the kingdom of God, his purpose in coming to earth um, to announce the kingdom, to live the kingdom, to disciple people in his way, to die on a cross, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. This is so helpful and so important for us. See, Jesus' purpose is not to get people into heaven when they die. I've said this last week, I've said it a lot before, and I'm going to keep saying it until uh, we get it. Because too often that's what we've heard the gospel is about. It's about like, I can kind of do whatever I want, but if I sort of say I trust in Jesus and I get saved, whatever I determine that to be, then I'm good and I go to heaven when I die. That's not what Jesus talked about. It's certainly not what Paul talked about. Um, it, there's something more, it's mo bigger. Like it's something so much bigger going on here. Something so much more important going on here. It's just about you. It's not a, just about you. It's about you and you and, and all people being reconciled to God through Jesus' death on a cross. That that is available, that there's a relationship with him that is now available, that you could live out of his resources, abide in him, to rest in him, to root your life in him, to live a different kind of life in the kingdom of God, and quite literally to create a new humanity, which is so important, I think. Um, so much, there's people out there, I mean, especially right now, right? We're, we're in a political season, we're approaching an election, and so many people are saying, if you, if you follow us, if you vote for us, if you trust in our political platform, then we will create a new kind of um, vision of the future together. And, and in some senses, like, I get it, right? There is an element of truth in that, but it's, it's always going to be a promise that doesn't come to fruition. It's always going to be something that gets sold short. Because only God can create a new humanity. Because he's the only one who made the first humanity. Keep that in mind. Um, and what we see very specifically is that Paul is saying that this new humanity that's being created, this, this kind of humanity where these divisions and these barriers are broken down, where it's no longer an us versus them, it's no longer an insider versus outsider, where there's literally just one people who are joined together at, in the person of Jesus, is that he says this happens through the cross. And I think this is, uh, this is kind of the point. Uh, you might ask the question, like, how is that possible? How does it even make sense? And I think uh, it makes a lot of sense if you just look at the cross. And you stop and consider that at the foot of the cross, everybody's equal. Everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter where you are in the socioeconomic life. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or somewhere in between. It doesn't matter uh, if you're a kid or you're a teenager or you're an adult or you're older or you're a senior adult or you're a veteran or you got one foot in the grave. It doesn't matter. At the foot of the cross, everybody's equal because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have missed the mark of what it means to be a true and complete human being. All have sinned and all are in need of forgiveness and everybody's in need of grace. And so at the foot of the cross, everybody's equal. And that's what Paul's bringing to focus here is he's trying to recall to these people who are living with tensions and different social dynamics is that, no, 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 like through the cross, everybody's equal. Through the cross, Jesus is bringing together a new humanity. So our question today, I think it's an important question, um, is what are those barriers like for us? Because guess what? Like they're not really Jew and Gentile, are they? 
It's not something that I deal with on a daily basis. Maybe you do, I don't know. Um, What are those barriers today? What are those dividing walls of hostility in our world today? Because I think we can all agree there's probably a couple. Is it religion? Is it adherence to a particular religious system? Um, is, it, is it about being you know, a particular denomination of Christian? Is it about being Christian or Muslim? What are those dividing walls? What is, the, is it religious? Is it, is it racially charged? I mean, probably, right? Is it, is it about politics? Right versus left or somewhere in between? What is it? Religion, race, politics, I mean, you name it, right? Education level, um, socioeconomic status. What is it? What are those dividing walls of hostility in our world? And then I want you to hear the message of Paul, is that um, those dividing walls of hostility, they're torn down in the person of Jesus. He literally rips them down. Um, it reminds me, like, just because I'm standing here, um, and I don't want you guys to get, like, too bogged down in, in how serious and, and thoughtful I am, because I am those things. But uh, this, uh, this place is Acuff Chapel. We'll talk more about it in a minute. And actually, right across the street um, is what they believe to be like the first parsonage um, in this area. Methodist parsonage, by the way. We'll get more on this in a minute. Trust me. Um, but anyway, uh, there was a lady. Who, there was a lady who lived like as the next door neighbor. Um, there's a history of Holston Methodism. I read this in. Just trust me. This is good. You'll want to pay attention. Um, anyway, the, the Methodist pastor lived in this house, right? And uh, and the lady like would come out. Who was his neighbor? Was like super mean. Like he didn't really know why. He she was just like really unkind to him. And so like he asked her. He's like, madam, why are why art thou so rude to me? That's probably how he spoke. I guess back in the day. And, uh, and she said, it's because you're a Methodist. He said, what? I mean, I'm a Methodist pastor. Like, I don't, yeah, but like, I mean, I respect you, even though you're a Baptist. He's like, well, I'm just saying, you're not biblical. He said, what do you mean I'm not biblical? Like, I, we preach the Bible like we try to be. She said, well, I would never read about any John the Methodist. I only read about John the Baptist. You can roll the drums now. It's pretty hilarious. I know. Actual thing. Um, that happened. History jokes. It's okay. Um, I'll go back to the Bible. How's that sound? One of the things that Paul is making clear is that those dividing walls, they're torn down in Jesus. Um, And that as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility um, to not feed the fuel and the fire of animosity between different groups. That as followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to reconciliation and to peace. Um, it's what he says here. It's like, um, you have been brought into one body, one humanity out of the two. That's making peace in one body to reconcile them to God through the cross. This whole message of the gospel has is a very significant implication. Peace, like reconciliation between people that when God forgives you, you then don't hold your grudges against other people that you've been forgiven so much. And that the really relatively minor issues that you have with other people, well, you need to forgive those too. That's kind of the point that Paul is driving at here. I think the reason this is so hard for us today, and part of the reason, if I can just be pretty blunt with you, uh, this is probably why I told you a joke so you wouldn't hate me. Um, Part of the reason I think our world is having such a hard time right now, particularly the United States of America, why we're having such a hard time, uh, in a country that professes to be about 70% Christian, is that too many Christians, they forget the gospel. (laughs) Too many Christians maybe don't really believe it. Too many Christians forget um, that everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. And it doesn't matter what your political party is. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what you profess to believe. Everyone's equal at the foot of the cross. And that we're not too busy 
to forget that. We can't be. It's literally the hope of the world. And no election, uh, no uh, political action committee, no method of reform is going to, to fix that. I mean, they might help, they might make some changes, it might be good or bad or varying levels of within that spectrum, but it's not going to fix it, right? we got to understand this. The only fix for the world is Jesus and the kingdom of God. Dallas World said there is not a problem in the world that discipleship to Jesus and his kingdom cannot solve. I fundamentally believe that to be true. If more people just took Jesus seriously, who profess to take Jesus seriously, I think we'd live in a different world. Right? It's just too many Christians, we get too busy. We're too busy to pray. We're too busy to study scripture. We're too busy to serve people who look different from us. We're too busy. We're too busy to make peace. We're too busy to reconcile. We're too busy. Hey, that's part of the problem. We're just way too busy. And we're too fixated on other things and not fixated on the cross. The Hebrew says, like, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And uh, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and everything else will be taken care of. There's really something very much to the idea of seeking first the kingdom, of placing Jesus as the sole focal point of your life, and everything else will take care of it. It's not that other stuff doesn't become important. It's that all that other stuff becomes important. If one thing is clear about the Christian gospel, it's that it dignifies the ordinary and the mundane. I'm going to say that one more time. If there is one thing that is abundantly clear about the Christian gospel is that it dignifies the ordinary and the mundane. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. This is in the course of your ordinary life. This is how you are to pray. Is that in the course of your ordinary life, which is the only place you can actually live, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. That's where you live out of your resources in the kingdom of God. So, all that to say, Paul gets to this idea. And he says, for through Jesus, we both, we all have access to the Father by one Spirit. Is it every, this is all possible, this whole thing, this whole thing that he's talking about, this everything that I've just spent the last however long talking about, it's all possible because we all have access to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Do you see the picture? It's like we are united by one Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, one Spirit, that if you believe in Jesus, you trust in Him, you receive that Spirit, it literally lives in you. The Spirit lives in you, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That power is available to you in the course of your average, mundane, cubicle life. I mean, you might not be in cubicles because of COVID, but you get the point. Is it like in the course of your ordinary life that Jesus can do things in you by the power of His Spirit as you live out of a relationship with Him? We have access to the Father which is something that uh, would have been very interesting for the Ephesians to hear. But I'll continue. I think you'll see why in just a second. Paul continues on, and he says, Consequently, another one of those really important words, because of this, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. All people who trust in Jesus, literally, Paul says, are being brought into his household. Um, it's this really interesting like word. It just it literally means like into the family. Basically, think of it like you are being brought into God's living room, like a, a kind of intimate family setting. That's the picture that we have here 
of, of followers of Jesus and that those people like from all different walks of life, all different kinds of people, that that's available and accessible to anyone, anywhere, anytime, in any place can literally be brought into God's living room, into his household, as part of his family. Which is what brings us here. You were waiting for it. I was waiting. Everybody's waiting for it. That's why we're here. So you're dying to know. I teased at it earlier. You're welcome. This is Acuff Chapel. Acuff Chapel is the first Methodist building in the state of Tennessee. Better than that, it is the first Methodist building west of the Appalachian Mountains. This building, this beautiful log cabin, uh, was built in 1786. Um, there were, so basically this guy, Timothy Acuff, who came to own this land, he, I believe, was from Maryland, and he came down uh, through West Virginia and settled this area in like the 1780s after the American Revolution. Um, and, and what was really interesting is that in that time, most of the, the frontier push, most of the people pushing out on the frontier, like west of the Appalachians, I mean, there would be like communities of different religious groups, in particular, uh, communities of Methodists who would push out in these areas and they just basically set up little like communities of Methodism, right? And they would just gather wherever they could and they would worship and they'd pray and they'd study scripture and they'd live out their lives together, just their ordinary lives. And they'd share meals together and they'd like farm and stuff. I guess that's what you did back in the day when you didn't have Netflix and they would just live their lives together, right? Is that the picture that we see? And, and of course there were so many people who were becoming Methodists in this area that eventually in 1786, they built this chapel, um, which I think is really important because, uh, the name is Acuff Chapel. Um, if you read about it, like it's not a church. Isn't that interesting? The sign says the first, um, the first Methodist church in Tennessee. I had to double check and make sure that's actually what it said. Um, the sign says the first Methodist church in Tennessee. That's not, that's not technically true, right? That's not how anyone wrote about it for a very long time. That's not how the earliest people who built this place, how they wrote about it. This was a chapel. This was a meeting house. It was a building where people came together to worship, but it wasn't a church. Um, it's a fascinating thing. Methodism in America has an amazing history. I won't get into all of it, but um, in 1776, when America was born, happy birthday, America, um, the two, roughly two and a half percent of the American population would have, been, would have called themselves Methodist. Uh, so that equates to one in 40 people, um, which is, you know, not nothing. It's a little bit higher today. In 1850, 70 years later, I mean, a full generation later, uh, roughly 35% of the American population was a member of the Methodist Church, like a bona fide card-carrying member of the Methodist Church. And in that day, one of the near compulsory activities of a member of Methodism was that you were actually a member of a class meeting. If you're not sure what that is, it's basically like a Methodist small group. So one in three Americans, roughly, was a member of a Methodist small group. Like, that's kind of a big deal. Like, did you know that? That's amazing, right? And how many other people were influenced by the teaching and the preaching and the life of Methodism as a result? Um, but it's interesting, right? Like, after 1850, that number starts to go downhill. It just steadily declines, like, all the way up to the present day. And, and so I just kind of ask the question, like, why is that? <laughs> A couple things happened. One of the things that happened is that class meeting attendance gradually became more voluntary. So to become a member of Methodism, you didn't really have to attend a small group. You didn't have to really be a part of actual community. Um, you could just kind of show up whenever you wanted to on Sunday and, and check the box. We call it good. 
Um, that's one part of it. Another really interesting thing that starts to happen is that they stopped calling the buildings chapels and meeting houses, and they started calling the buildings churches. Isn't that interesting? Like, they actually, I don't know why. I don't know. I, I, if you know, like, you can get at me and let me know. I don't know why yet. I'm still working on the research. But, like, at some point in the late 1800s, we stopped calling our buildings meeting houses and chapels and houses of worship, and we started to call them churches. And I think that that shift makes a big difference because one of the things that Paul makes clear and one of the things that early Methodism knew very well is that like the church was not a building. The church is a people. I feel like a broken record sometimes because I say that so much, but like, have we learned nothing else over the last six months? Like God help us. I literally hope he helps us to understand that that is true, to live out that reality that the church is not a building. It is the people. We have buildings and they are nice buildings and they're wonderful buildings and incredible tools and assets and resources. So nice that we can even build beautiful, nice historic buildings that will last for 300 years. But this idea that like the church is not that. The church is the people who use that building as a tool. And Paul specifically says that in like some really important ways, right? Like you heard the language, says you are the building. In him, the whole building is being built together. Is that you're literally built on the foundation. You see the foundation behind me. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The one who's bearing all the weight of the entire structure. The one on whom the foundation itself even rests. Is that like scripture is this foundation. The, the teaching of the apostles and the prophets is foundation that literally rests on the person, the authority, and the word of Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And that you are the house that's built on top of him. See, in the Old Testament in particular, this idea that the house of God, it, it was literally equated to the, the temple in, in Jerusalem, the, the Jewish temple. It was literally called the house of God. We even see this come through in the New Testament uh, when Jesus goes into the temple. You hear about the story in all four Gospels, but you know, just thinking about it in John 2, for instance, is that uh, Jesus goes into the temple and he cleans house. You know, like, you know the story you ever remember? That's, like, that's a very memorable story. When Jesus goes and starts kicking over tables, and throwing like offering baskets like frisbees across the room like that's what Jesus is doing in the temple and people are upset and Jesus responds he says you know my father said he quotes Isaiah 56 and he says my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations this idea that this is God's house it is the place where God lives like literally it's his home is the temple. This is this idea in the Old Testament. And so Jesus comes in, he says, but, but you've made God's house, you've made it a den of robbers. Um, and then specifically what we see is the story continues on. The, the scriptural story is that Jesus dies and the veil in the temple is torn in two, literally the dividing walls in the temple between the, the presence of God and the people is torn in two. And that quite literally the, the apostles, they receive the spirit of God as they're outside the temple in Jerusalem and that now something new is happening. Paul says that you are literally now the building, the house of God. You are God's house. You, the people of God, are God's house, not a building. Because it was never supposed to be a building. It was always about the people, that the people would become the place and the presence and the dwelling of God on the earth, and they would extend that presence and that blessing to all the world who was far from him. But of course, another thing that's very helpful is that like the Ephesian church, they maybe had seen the temple in Jerusalem, maybe they hadn't, but they had another like very vivid example of what that looked like in the center of their own city, is they had this temple of Artemis. 
I mean, the, the temple of the Ephesian goddess Artemis was massive. I mean, the largest pagan temple in the ancient world is huge. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it's up there with the pyramids, you know? Like the only reason I think more people don't know about it is because it got destroyed, like earthquakes. It happens to be along some major fault lines, and so it eventually fell down. But I mean, it was massive, this thing was. And so as Paul is talking about these ideas of temples and buildings, and they could very clearly see that. And one of the things that, of course, these pagan temples were very um, clear about is that like, if you needed something from the gods, what'd you do? You went to the temple. If you needed uh, favor from the gods, what'd you do? Well, you went to the priest who lived at the temple. If you needed um, some kind of miracle in your life, what do you do? You go to the temple. That's the idea. And what Paul is saying is that, no, 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 you are the temple. And so when people have needs in the community, where do they go? They don't go to a building, they go to you. When people need a miracle in the community, what do they do? They don't go to the temple. They don't go to the Ephesus and the Ephesian temple. They go to you. You're the temple. When people need some kind of favor with God, what do they do? They don't go to a temple. They go to you. Is it you would become the place of blessing in the world. You. Like all y'all. The, the church itself, the people, would become the place that the, the world looks to for help and for salvation and for hope. It's one of the fascinating things that, that Paul says is like, um, he, he quotes like here in the very beginning of the section, he says you, that when you were Gentiles, you were without God and without hope. But literally the picture is that like as followers of Jesus, we are to be the, the very place of hope and the very residence of God. The, the ancient world called Christians, the early Christian church, first couple hundred years, they called them atheists. Do you know why? This is because they didn't seem to worship any gods. Right? I mean, just what it looked like from a pagan perspective, keep this in mind. They had no temples. They had uh, no, like, really formal priesthood. It seemed really weird and informal, and they didn't have all the right clothes, and they didn't have these fancy buildings. So they were atheists. Right? For about 300 years, there were no Christian temples. And then you know what happens? We decided, like, I guess at some point, right, the, the Roman, it becomes the official religion, the Roman Empire, and we say, like, ah, oh, well, now we can build temples, and so let's build ourselves some temples. And see, this is how it happens, right? The movement moves from the people to buildings. And what God's Spirit, like, literally, like a blowing wind always does, blows back to say, no, 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 no. it's about the people. It's about the Spirit of God living in people, that you were the dwelling place of God you it's not about a building right like if i had a nickel for every time i met someone who was afraid to literally walk in a church building because they were afraid they were going to be struck dead literally struck dead or struck by lightning i'd be terrified too right i would never go in one either but and i don't mean the sacrilegious at all it's just a building like you get struck down going into food city you don't good like i hope not like it won't happen in a church building either is it if, if you don't get struck down when, like, you shake my hand, then you're not going to get struck down by walking in a building either. And, like, I have not ever had anyone get struck down by shaking my hand. And, I mean, I haven't done that much lately because COVID, but you know the point, right? Is that It's about the people of God being the dwelling place of God, being the new humanity that God is creating in the world to be that place of his blessing. Because God does not live in a house built by human hands. He lives in a house that he builds with his own hands. And it's you. That's the picture that we have in Scripture. It was never about his build. It was never about a building. It was about a people filled with the Spirit, with the presence. It's like God takes that box of Legos, right, and dumps it on the floor, all different shapes and sizes and colors. And like we look at it and we say, that doesn't make any sense. How does that ever become the Death Star? You know. 
but what God is, he sees that big mess of bricks and he's going to make something out of it. Something that is, uh, when it stands up on its own as it's always been meant to be, that it is actually something that the world can see and look to and say, yeah, there's something there. Maybe I too can be a part of this Lego house. Maybe I too could, could see how this whole thing fits together. And that the entire glue, as Paul says, that holds this whole thing together is that we have access to the Father through the Son as the cornerstone upon which the whole building rests in the one Spirit that we all have access to. That's the picture. That's God's building project. It's never been just about a physical building. It's always been about the people and what God is doing in them and through them for the sake of the world. So, uh, so what? <laughs> Why does all this matter? I know, hopefully you get it by now. Um, but I mean, if you just look at our world right now, you see that like there's so much division, there's so much hostility, so much pain and brokenness, and, and people are just like grasping at whatever they can think to try to fix the problems in our society. And like, I don't want to be the guy who tells everybody, I mean, I, I don't want to be that guy. But like, it's not going to work. I'm not being pessimistic. I'm not trying to be like, start a riot. Last thing I want to do. But like, it's not going to work. That stuff will not fix the problems in our society. Um, no amount of reforms, no amount of elections, no amount of having your candidate win, no amount of, uh, of anger on social media, no amount of just lobbing, you know, verbal all caps hand grenades at people on social media, no amount of memes showing anyone like standing on the prow of a ship crossing the, you know, Delaware River dressed up like George. None of that is going to solve the problems in our world. It won't fix it. You know what's going to make a really big difference? Is if the people of God would humble themselves and seek God's presence in the course of their average, normal, everyday, mundane, boring, cubicle-filled, spreadsheet-inducing lives, that then God's presence would be manifest to people. That then we could look back and people could see that this big mess of Lego bricks on the floor is being built into something. And that it is a beautiful thing if we would just allow it to be so. So I want to pray for you today. Um, wherever you find yourself, whether you've, um, you know that you're a part of this community, you know like you're just a little Lego brick floating in that, that building somewhere, whether um, you've never really been a part of the church because you have legitimate fears, because you've been hurt by the church in the past, because you have been afraid to walk into a building before. Um, I just want to pray for you. Wherever you find yourself, whether you've been in church buildings your entire life, whether you're angry at me because of anything I've said, and if you're still watching it, then you can't be that angry and bless you for it. Or whether you're, you know, you're just really struggling with all this and like, how do I live in the course of my, this world that we're in right now? I just want to pray for you. Um, so if you would, I just invite you to open up your hands and your heart and just to receive this blessing, to receive this prayer, to receive um, this gift of God that he makes available to us. Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your life. I thank you for the good news of the kingdom of God. I thank you that you have made a way for us to come to you. I thank you that you live in a temple not built by human hands. I thank you that no matter where we are or what we look like or what we profess to believe, what our religion, race, creed, political preference, color of our skin, whatever any of that might be, that you have made a way to create a new humanity 
through your spirit, remind us today that at the foot of the cross, everyone is equal. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Whatever language that might be, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remind us that we are not in charge. Remind us that you are the King, that you are sovereign and that you are Lord, and that you do invite us to steward this world that you've given us. You've made a way for us to live in partnership with you. And so I pray that wherever folks find themselves today, whether this is their first time really thinking about Jesus and the church and buildings and, or whether they've been doing this for a long time or whether they're getting sick and tired of me talking about it, that they would just receive your spirit. That they would begin to catch the vision that you placed in the hearts and the minds and the mouths of your apostles and your prophets. That The church has never been a building. It's always been the people. That you don't live in a house built by human hands. You live in a house built by your own hands that we would see ourselves as your workmanship and your masterpiece and to live out of that place in the course of our normal, average, everyday lives. And I pray that, pray that you would bless all the people who are engaging with this, wherever they find themselves this week, that as they go into and over the course of their average, normal lives, that they would know that they are blessed in that place. They don't have to go somewhere else. They don't have to become someone else. They don't have to do something else or check some religious boxes that is right where they are. That is where you're blessing them. And so I pray that the Lord would bless you and keep you, that he would make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, that he would lift up his countenance upon you and give you his very peace. For it is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, thanks for joining with us this week, guys. Um, we'll be in a different place next time. Uh, if you ever do get the chance, Acuff Chapel, it's up here on Memorial Boulevard in Blountville, not too far from Sullivan Central. Pretty cool. little sketchy turnoff. Might better walk, watch out if you do that, but it's a pretty cool spot, worth a, worth a 10 to 15 minute drive if you want. Pretty nice spot. Encourage you to check it out. But if there's anything that we can do to help you or to serve you in the coming week, please do let us know. If you want more information about our in-person gatherings, just send me an email. Let us know about that as well. Um, in the meantime, I'm praying for you. I love you. God bless you. I, just, I really do want the best for you. And so if there's anything that you need at all, please do reach out and let me know. And I'd love to pray with you or to pray for you. Um, in the meantime, y'all have a great week. Make a great day. And we'll catch you in a different place next time.